Who is on your list of greatest working film directors? If she isn't already, Catherine Bigelow should be. Take a look at her film resume, and it's clear she's assembled a body of work that is deserving of such consideration. But great director is maybe the only category that Bigelow fits neatly within because her films cross genres and tones in such a way that it's incredibly difficult to characterize what a Catherine Bigelow film is. Tell someone you're going to see a Catherine Bigelow film, and they could assume it's got something to do with Iraq or Afghanistan, the main character is broken in some profound way, that there will be a generalized intensity that she's known for stoking, but her filmography is not predictable except in one crucial way, pressure. The characters in a Catherine Bigelow film are under extraordinary pressure. Professional pressure from those above them, pressure from within to succeed in their goals, the pressure of a life-threatening situation. Pressure is amorphous, it can envelop or it can be surgical. Its source can be specific or generalized, and it is genreless. Zero Dark Thirty has every kind of pressure there is. And CIA operative Maya is under a ton of it to do maybe the hardest thing a spy has ever been tasked with, finding Osama bin Laden post 9-11. And casting Jessica Chastain in this role is a stroke of genius, because few actors embody the kind of toughness that she can command. That's why when you see Maya absorb her complicity in the horrors of torture, or the death of a coworker, or even a boss that underestimates her, we are put on alert. You aren't supposed to be able to rattle Jessica Chastain. She'll kick your ass. So when we see her off balance, we are made to understand the growing desperation Maya feels. Whether it's getting a bite to eat at a hotel restaurant, or pulling out of her driveway, or cursing at Leon Panetta during a briefing, self-preservation becomes secondary to her pursuit of her target. You know where all of this is leading, because we all remember where we were the night this story ends. And yet, Bigelow is able to derive so much thrill from the story and the characters that when UBL finally gets triple tapped, it feels like you're considering the moment for the very first time. But how are we supposed to feel? The film doesn't give us that answer, or any answer, really. The film is agnostic about torture, about risk, about the aftermath. Maya's in tears by the end of the film, but is it relief in the wake of her accomplished mission? Is it grief that her reason for being is now gone? What now? Bigelow doesn't give us the answers because her skill is in asking the questions. She's kind of a master at that. Everybody breaks, bro. It's biology. On today's Friendly Fire, we discuss 2012's Zero Dark Thirty. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that's the only place that you can hear a review of Zero Dark Thirty by Three Dork Zeros. I'm Ben Harrison. Wow! I'm Adam Pranica. I reject this introduction. I am... We were just talking about how you don't like wordplay before we started recording, and I was... It was so tempting to reveal my opening barrage. Oh, boy. I mean... I feel strafed. I don't want to edit what you just did there, but I would be more of a zero dork 40 and then John's a zero dork 50, right? Wow. I mean... Sure. We, I see what you're doing. Yeah. Is that a hat on a hat? 
I really am. I, you know, I question doing this show all the time, but now <laughs> never more than, more than now. <laughs> I've made a lot of choices in life, and I'm I'm reevaluating them. This is a film that inspires a lot of questions, right? <laughs> oh God, mm. it just keeps getting worse. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> I mean, do you want to stay with the wordplay or what, you want to pivot back to show? What uh, what did I do wrong? I you you deserve know. this, John. <laughs> uh, yeah, Adam. Uh, this uh, this this movie did cause me to think a lot and reevaluate <laughs> a lot. Uh, just another killer combo of Mark Bowl and Catherine Bigelow keeping the team yeah. together. Yeah. You know, if, if he doesn't watch out, Mark Bowl is going to be uh, right cast. As a certain type of screenwriter. <laughs> He's definitely shagging some flies on this one. Yeah. I think this movie sets sail for the waters of controversy, you know, knowing that that's what it's doing, right? Wow, that was really nice, Ben. Sets, oh, very poetic, sets yeah. Sets sail for the waters of controversy. Yeah. This is really the yacht rock of war films. <laughs> you guys are both just smoking today. I, I feel like I'm... I feel like I gotta, I gotta guzzle some coffee. Get up to your speed. <laughs> mm. But I think that's a very good way of putting it. There's so much. Uh, there was so much controversy about this from both sides. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and both sides has really become kind of your catchphrase, John. <laughs> well, you know, as a boomer, I feel obligated to say both sides <laughs> in response to everything, but. But there was, uh, there was so much pushback, both from the side of American politics that really objects to any sort of sympathetic portrayal of torture specifically, but, you know, the idea that um, the, 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 the critical response to this, that, that torture had not produced any actionable results, and therefore right. this film was kind of a str- like a, a weird thriller propaganda but then the pushback from the intelligence community uh, that objected to being portrayed as torturers, uh, it was, it, it, there was so much of it that it has colored the way we, I think the way we watch the movie now. What, did you guys both see it in the theaters when it first came out? I did. I did. And were you aware of the controversy going in or, I mean, were you reading the newspaper on your way into the theater? Or did you only did you catch that after? I think it was hard to ignore the controversy. I mean, this came out in October, uh, right before Obama's reelection, right to his second term, and there the the Republicans flipped out just that it was timed the way it, it was, like the allegation that it was uh, timed to propel Obama to a second uh, a second term in office because they assumed that it would portray the the killing of uh, Osama bin Laden as an Obama project although the movie doesn't really Obama is not like a main character here they they did decide not to use that as a working title the Obama project <laughs> is going to be saved for something else I mean reading reading back on it and I don't know if I was totally clear on this at the time but it really feels like both the Republicans and Democrats wanted to portray this movie as an unfair tool of the other party. I mean, like, I, like, I feel like that is self-consciously w- what the movie is trying to be is like, is something that is defiantly 
not coming down on one side or another. Yeah, which I think makes it such a sort of cipher that either side could employ to support their case. And I think both uh, Republican and Democrats did cherry pick aspects of it to say, well, this part of the movie's great, but uh, <laughs> the other side, is, you know, the other part of the movie is complete fiction. And the filmmakers also walked into that by saying it's based on a true story uh, and we stand by the characterizations made in the film, but also it's a dramatization and a fictionalization of it. So a lot of the things that you're complaining about, you know, hey, it's just a, you know, it's a novel, not a documentary. Mm. Um, right. There's that opening screen that says, like, this is based on interviews with the people who are really there, which... Well, in the cold open, real phone calls from 9-11, I mean, that's like right. a, a real punch in the gut. Did we need to be reminded about how angering and terrifying 9-11 was to justify everything that happens in this movie or not? I, re I remember sitting in the theater and feeling like that was very effective because we were still in an era where you would see the footage. I mean, people would employ that footage of the towers burning. Right. basically to sell car, car insurance by 2012 <laughs> yeah oh yeah the general yeah and so, <laughs> when we uh when, when the movie uh when the movie comes up uh, i was here watching it um with a friend and she said we were having trouble with uh, with the computer she was like ah oh, the sound's not working and she got up and actually stopped the computer and checked the connections and started it again because all those title sequences yeah the seven production companies involved usually have boom, boom, uh, boom, boom, a music stinger boom, boom, or something. Dum, dum, dum. you know yeah. they all have a little uh, their jolly little tune sit boo boo and there was <laughs> there was uh there was none of that yeah. it was just like quiet and kind of staticky it yeah. sounded like the sound wasn't working and so this when, is much more effective in a movie theater than it is in a home viewing because that sure. uh, like 10 times out of 10 when a movie when a filmmaker makes that choice it causes me to get up and make sure the everything's plugged in correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And 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 it's not a great like performance <laughs> of a piece of art. <laughs> and you know they got in trouble for using some of those recordings of people without permission. Yeah, how horrible mm. must it have been to have heard a loved one's voice? in this film and and to be surprised to hear it shocking yeah although if if, if your loved one died on 9-11 i would probably not going to see this movie I would right tiptoe into movies about 9 or maybe this is your favorite movie right they do they did get the bad guy i spoiler alert i thought a lot about <laughs> spoiler alert. using these voices and placing them where they are in the film and conceiving of a version of this film without the 9-11 voices, I think, changes a lot. I think, Ben, you were alluding to this earlier, a lot about how you feel when you see some of the imagery that follows. Right, because immediately we see people getting tortured. Right. It cross-cuts into that cell with Amar from here. And you must remember, the film is telling you, you must remember that the war on terror is explicitly linked to 9-11. Right. And this is like the immediate aftermath, too. I mean, the movie kind of, it does, I feel like, take a position on torture. It, you know, there's some things that it kind of hand waves about and doesn't take a position on, but it kind of repeatedly comes back and makes the case for this. Even though there's a real guy that gave up the name of the courier and he is not 
there's no evidence that he was ever waterboarded or and and it it is possible that quote unquote enhanced in, interrogation techniques were used but uh not as extreme as what is portrayed in this movie i'm not sure i agree that the film has a side about uh the use of these techniques and i think the first time i saw the film i was expecting jason clark's character to basically turn to camera and go torture it's fantastic like i was expecting a real hard line on it and when i didn't get it the first time i saw the film it surprised me then and it surprised me again watching the film a few days ago that's a great lyric by the way it surprised me then it surprised me again i'm just gonna write that down keep talking You heard it here first, folks. John Roderick's new album will be out eventually. It certainly does not draw the line between the voices playing on 9-11 and a scene of torture. You know, there is no uh, there is no comparable line between someone being tortured and the information given in that scene actually leading to something important happening. Well, the first time I saw the movie, I thought that the one little scene... Uh, you that- really did write down what i said yeah it surprised me then it surprised me again wow you're gonna hear that one day someday i'll be thanked in some liner art the thing is you won't remember it when yeah. you hear the song no nope. some nerd on the internet will be like <clears throat> adam deserves four dollars you know what you'll probably pronounce it like thane and again or something you'll give it some weird emphasis adam will be up on some hunk's shoulders in a, an arena show yep. swinging his shirt around his head I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the Grammy Awards with you as the Delilah to your plain white tees I'm songwriter. A, yep. I'm going to point to you in the crowd and go, get up here. Come yeah. on up here. Dance with me. Uh-huh. So I, th- I thought that the, that the connection to, between waterboarding and torture and the intelligence that they, that they ended up expanding into um, – the you know the the discovery of the courier. I thought it all hinged on that one moment where they where they pull him out. Um, they lie to him about the bombing that happened in Saudi Arabia. They they explain to him that he actually gave them intel that prevented it because he's in the dark about what has happened. And he, they're feeding him dates and like you want a cigarette? Like you're a friend now. And he gives them a little bit of intel there. And I and I remembered it. As, yeah, but dates don't qualify as enhanced interrogation. They, they got they, they got actionable you. intelligence uh, over over cigarettes and coffee. But 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 in the context of enhanced, I mean, like preventing somebody from sleeping for ninety six hours is torture. And well, now it hold is on. in the context of. <laughs> I think the administration. I think, I think would John's say. doing pod after ninety six hours of that sleep. <laughs> Oh, uh, <laughs> Dick, gr- great to have you here on the program. Oh, what? Uh, shot anybody in the face lately? <laughs> well, <clears throat> I don't remember. <clears throat> but in fact, the movie makes the case that, I mean, a lot of guys are getting uh, enhancedly interrogatedly in mm. this movie. You want to write that down as a, as a couplet? And uh, there's a lot. The, Who said you don't do good wordplay, John? <laughs> The movie is saying that they're, you know, through this process, they're, they're, they're sifting, 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 and they got a, they got a lot of, um, the clean white flower of intelligence from this process. 
You're talking about flour, like the the baking ingredient. Yeah, or, that's right. Or you, something you with take, petals. You take a rough, you take a rough flour and then you sift it. Right. You Have, do. You, you know, this is a thing that used to happen back in the old days before everything was made with computers, including bread. You can't make a bread <laughs> with computers. <laughs> <laughs> I read a, I, I read a um, an editorial in the Washington Post that was written by uh, Jose Rodriguez, who was the guy in the CIA who designed the enhanced um, interrogation program and like during this period like ran the counterterrorism center ran the clandestine service this is the guy when dan shoves amar into the box he's like you're going into the rodriguez box yeah that, he calls he calls it the old rodriguez box right um, and this guy in the Washington Post, and it's sort of at the time, right? He this this editorial came out during this whole hullabaloo, and he said, "Look, uh, this is a super fun movie. My beef about the torture scenes, I'm you know because a lot of intelligence people were coming out and saying we didn't get any intelligence from enhanced interrogation, and he was saying that's not the that's not the critique." We actually did get intelligence from enhanced interrogation. The 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 beat my beef is this isn't what it looked like. We never hit anybody. We tied some guys to some boards. We used water bottles to waterboard them. But we I love that that he's making a granular distinction between like a plastic rubbermaid pitcher yeah. of water. He really in his, in this editorial he was like, "We don't use pitchers. That's barbaric." <laughs> We, use, we only use Dasani. Dasani, <laughs> the chosen water of the intelligence community. These floors don't have drains. We can't pour that much water onto them. But so he got really granular, and what he was saying was the Abu Ghraib footage of people being chained and, and naked and flogged, which was like a like a major that was a crime that was being committed by, you know by army soldiers that were had been given too much authority. He was saying that has colored what we think torture. Oh, you're saying like. it was kind of like a few bad apples and it didn't <laughs> didn't really go all the way to the top. Is that kind of No, what he was saying was that the black sites, the CIA black sites were these super heavily monitored that that you wouldn't even slap somebody because it was because there were lawyers all over it and it was hyper hyper meticulous torture. He was really proud in this editorial of like how <laughs> meticulous our torture was. And he was like, no. And you the, don't understand <laughs> the evil was so much more banal than you're depicting yeah, it. Listen, there were at least three levels of administration between every slap. <laughs> the paper's like, you know, we, we can offer you some copy editor help if you'd like that or someone to like read over your work before it publishes. And Rodriguez is like, no, man, I'm good. <laughs> well, the thing was, <laughs> Let's go with it. He was a guy that just felt like we, this is, you know, yeah, I'm really proud of this. Like we really, we got some, you know, we, we strapped Khalid to a gurney. He said at one point, he's like, but we he never threw anybody that, on the floor. We strapped him to gurneys. Did this editorial make the paper after Osama bin Laden was killed? Because I don't think he writes that before that, right? Well, no, he, this is this was 2013 yeah. that he's writing this. And I think he's also retired at that like, point. Doesn't the death of Osama bin Laden give someone like that cover to, to say those things, the way that they're being said? Because that's sort of what the movie's about, right? Like, do the ends justify the means? The reason that we wrestle with this and the reason that it came out that when it came out that it was so controversial is that 
the time to have the time to stop torturing was before we started torturing. We didn't do this before, right. or at least we didn't do it publicly. It was against the American way. <clears throat> and it's so hard now to look back and think in recent memory was a time when the entire idea of being the, the I'm sorry, the public face of American statecraft was that you didn't chain a guy in a shipping container and and waterboard him. And I know that the cynics and um, and the critics of American foreign policy are going to say, ha, 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 how naive. We always dumped guys down wells and slit their throat in the middle of the night and so forth. But in terms of the way we conducted ourselves publicly in a, in a conflict like this, this was beyond the pale. And we didn't, as the American public, Congress, nobody actually did anything about it. And the Bush administration justified it and wrote a bunch of memos justifying it. But we had our chance as the American people to condemn this and put a stop to it. And, you know, and it was part of what Obama ran on, right? That he was going to close down yeah. Guantanamo. They have a clip of, of I think it's it, him discussing it in the context of a campaign in the movie, right? Yeah, it's the only scene, it's the only kind of mention of Obama He's talking directly. to Steve Croft on 60 Minutes in this movie, isn't he? Yeah, and just saying, like, this is this is what we don't do. I mean, now, who knows what the administration... I wonder about this, John, because we've watched so many Vietnam films that depict American soldiers doing really horrible things. Like, what what is the distinction there? The distinction is clear. Like, there are rules of engagement, and... In war, there's very little you can do to monitor every single soldier's conduct. The whole thing about casualties of war was not that these guys didn't go do this terrible stuff, but that that was a prosecutable offense. And there was there were all kinds of cover-ups. There were people that didn't want to deal with it. But ultimately, a soldier that that violated these terms, you know, the the um, the Articles of War or whatever, would would be prosecute criminally prosecutable, and that's. That's always been true. I mean, but it was like a slap on the wrist, right? I mean, but but still prosecutable. I mean, there are people all the time in public life that get away with murder, you know, get a slap on the wrist because there was because the cops didn't put the bullet casings in the right bag. There, there's a lot about the criminal justice system that you can pick apart. But I don't know about that. Yeah, you can you can critique it at a lot of <laughs> levels, but it is a system, right? That does have that does have pretty clear rules. And for the administration to do this, to make a legal case for it, which is what they were doing, and to say, no, 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 this doesn't violate the um, our code of conduct was something very different than some guys out in the bush grabbing somebody and, and dunking his head in a well to get, or dunking his head in a swamp to get intel about where the sniper nest is. You know, because we have the Monroe Doctrine too, right? You don't go assassinate the leader of another country, and if you make a case that, uh, if you make a case that, well, if we're dropping bombs from a drone or something, you know, it's not assassination. We we weren't targeting that head of state. We were just we we're tar- targeting the guy right next to him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were targeting his daughter. Uh, you know, like we're 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 definitely in a place now where what were the hard and fast rules are starting to erode. I never understood how the Monroe Doctrine got its name. Like, what does Marilyn Monroe have to do with it? Oh, it was based on uh, the character Monroe from the classic 80s sitcom Too Close for Comfort. <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Based in San Francisco. <laughs> ben, I'm sure you I'm sure you kind of lived the too close for comfort life. Uh, I was hanging with Mr. Cooper myself. <laughs> when you lie to me, I hurt you. I definitely recall, you know, the media conversation about the kind of normalization of of torture and the the way like the Bush administration was choosing to project American power being something that in the long run uh, is potentially making the world a more dangerous place for Americans because it, you know, it erodes our esteem. Like it makes us seem cruel and vindictive and, and not honorable. And I mean, there's, there's a lot in this movie that made me think about that. Like the room full of children that watched a SEAL team come in and kill all the adults that they knew. Uh, like it's hard to imagine that those people in like 15 years aren't going to be aren't going to have like a pretty major axe to grind right when i first saw the movie that was one of the most striking aspects of it was uh the idea that those that the that dev grew or whatever jumped back on their helicopters and left uh, by some accounts uh osama bin laden had 22 children and um all 22 of them seem to have been in real stick man, you know, <laughs> uh, he had a few wives, you know, it was the, it was the style of the time, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, all of those kids like that pretty formative memory. Um, right. And they're, and they're going to be in therapy for years. Sure. They're, I mean, a lot of them are, well, they're all, they're all grown now. Right. Um, yeah, I guess, I guess they would be. But well, at least what was that? Eight years ago? When did it happen? No, that the movie came out eight years ago, two thousand, right before the election, right? So two thousand eight. Uh, it was twenty well, two thousand eleven, May second, yeah. two thousand eleven. Is when the is when the raid happened? Yeah. So check yeah. it out. They shot the raid part exactly a year after the wow. raid happened. Phenomenal. And this movie was released nineteen months after it. Whoa. So as a production project, it's insane. Right. Like they ended up having a film here that was totally about the failed capture of Osama bin Laden, and they were ready to shoot. Like that week, they were ready to shoot, and then he's captured and killed and Mark Bull's like tearing up his script <laughs> and they're having to start again from one and he rewrote it in a matter of months and then they were shooting it immediately like the pace of play here I thought was incredible as a project I remember feeling that way about Black Hawk Down too that the movie came out soon enough after events that it felt like it was still um, it was actually part of the the yeah. whole arc of events, as if it were still going on. Yeah, like yeah. oh, this is you know, and this is the kind of culmination of it is yeah. that we've made a huge Hollywood movie about it. That's crazy. It doesn't seem possible. Uh, we're now only seven years after the fact, right? So, or eight years after the fact at, at this time of recording. So, some of those kids are still Osama bin Laden's kids are still like standing up in class going. Well, I have a, a my book report is on enhanced interrogation. <laughs> this film is so narrow in its focus and this is part of this is part of what I don't like about the film is that it neglects to ask some pretty interesting questions about anything outside of its very tight focus, like what happened to those kids? Well, like we we can't know because the movie was made a year after. Well, no, I mean, like, we don't see them either getting on the chopper or being left behind looking skyward as the choppers leave. Like, it doesn't even give us that. The chop, they're all the way, the chopper's back in Afghanistan and those kids are still huddled in the corner sobbing. Yeah. I mean, 
Maybe I saw a different version of the movie than you guys because I remember uh, I remember the guy from Parks and Rec holding his finger up and it starts glowing in front of one of the kids and he says, I'll be right here. He says, and he touch, touches the kid on his heart. I don't remember that part. I do remember the part where he steps into that room and the kids approach from a couple different sides and he holds both hands out <laughs> as if he's communicating on some level with them. Mm-hmm. I remember the kid, the kid walked up to him and said, I see dead people. The thing about really uh, the thing about Osama bin Laden's kids is, is that uh, you see the one dead ahead, but you neglect to see the ones approaching from the sides. Mm, clever girl. Well, I, I I thought about it then, and I think about it now. Like the the sun came up on that day, and those local dudes who had always been curious about what was going on in that big house all kind of walked through the gate. There was a helicopter burning in the yard, and then the police must have shown up. And there, where did those kids spend the next night? You I know? think you could in have given another twenty minutes. To, like, there's always this guy in any raid or any or any like mission. Like, there's there's the wheel man, but the wheel man on this mission is the guy outside the compound watching the approaching horde of people oh, who have been roused from their slumber by the a, crashing helicopter. Such a great scene. That guy has got a terrifically awful job. And it has got to be as terrifying as anything happening inside that house. One of the most memorable scenes of the film. Yeah. But I, I disagree with you about the narrowness of the scope. I think the narrowness is the movie's primary strength. It's a very strangely structured movie, right? Like, it's kind of one half is just like Jessica Chastain doing research and, and running around interviewing people. And then, like, there's like a hard cut and then there's just a raid. Right, <laughs> like it's not, it, it it doesn't even feel like she's there for the last half. All right, I guess it's not really half, but like the last hour, would you say? Is the raid? I, I it feels like the movie is a full movie and then the raid, right? I mean, it's yeah. it's a long movie and it feels like um, it feels like we have we've been with her for a movie length amount of time. When when we first went into Afghanistan, I think we had a real clear idea that we were going to chase. Um, we were going to chase the Taliban and Al-Qaeda up into the mountains around Tora Bora and we were going to bomb them back to the Stone Age and that was going to be the end. And it was astonishing that they got away. How could they get away? They're, they're riding donkeys and we have all the air power and all the commandos in the world. And how did they... They went into what? Caves? What are you talking about? Like it seemed insane that you could escape right. us at that point. And it was an era where, where Rumsfeld and that whole group, uh, they really were invested in the idea that we didn't need big armies anymore. We could use surgical strikes and special forces, and you could just insert super highly trained dudes with fuzzy beards that are like cute at the same time. Have you ever seen the heat signature of a donkey? You should be able to, to <laughs> no. hit that thing with a cruise missile you for should. sure. You should, from 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 30,000 feet. Yeah. And the fact that everything... This movie we, does kind of feel like... It does feel insane that it took like this many billions of dollars and this many resources to get one guy. To get one guy. And and how he got away in the first place and how we couldn't... And this is the, the mystery, the great mystery of Afghanistan, Pakistan, the wall against which empires crash how it is that that um, the British and the Russians and the Americans and and uh, 
Alexander the Great and everybody, you know, they they arrive here in these mountains and and they leave with their hopes dashed. This is what I mean by the distinction between narrow and broad focus, though, because what you're describing is this greater understanding of of this place in the world and the geopolitics surrounding it. But what the film does is put a pin in 9-11 and a pin in the forehead of Osama bin Laden and draws a perfectly straight line between them. But that perfectly straight line shows us like the frustratingly granular amount of work that that our heroine and all of her like friends and staff we did. We don't know anything about Maya at all. She is a... I mean, Jessica Chastain is great and I love her as an actor and as Maya, she is good in this movie, but she is... She's nothing in this film as a character. You don't she know is, where she's from. You don't know. I don't know anything that she cares about besides killing bin Laden, which is cool. Like that's enough to, to be on her side, but she has no friends or family or contacts or like, she's not a real person in the context of this film. And you know, she is based on a real person and I'm not advocating for some sort of like Valerie Plame, like outing of, of the real inspiration for her. Well, thank God. But Good movies are made about interesting characters, and she is not a character. What's her favorite band, Adam? I mean... 311? Misfits. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't that be interesting? (laughs) If she had a Misfits uh, sticker on her laptop? It's uh, not until the Marriott that the movie even kind of acknowledges that, like, she's sitting down with, uh, with her friend and they begin to have a conversation where it's like, okay, finally we are going to get to know this this lady a little bit, and then the restaurant explodes and they have to run off. But isn't like, that the character? I mean, she has yeah, no, no, I th- she has I no think friends. That that's, I think the movie is very like specifically saying this never happens because she is so single-minded and like the second she she stops and takes a breath and tries to have a glass of wine and a chat with a friend like a a truck bomb goes off outside the Marriott. Like she is a classic, deeply unhappy person. She, uh, I mean like that, that moment at the end is the implication is she has nothing to like nothing now. Right. The guy says, where do you want to go? And she has, she couldn't even think of a place. That's where the non work of her character development actually paid off for me at the end, because that, and here comes the film paper. Like that's how our country feels. We just killed bin Laden. Oh, now what? It like did it really change anything? Adam just dropped a one megaton film paper. Here's on this. here's the United States of America riding alone on the plane home. Yeah. Where do you want to go, America? Yeah, America doesn't know. It really uh, it reminds me of a classic Weird Al lyric. I know Darth Vader's really got you annoyed, but remember, if you kill him, that you'll be unemployed. Welcome back to Fireside Chat on KMAX. With me in studio to take your calls is the dopest duo on the West Coast, Oliver Wong and Morgan Rhodes. Go ahead, caller. Hey, uh, I'm looking for a music podcast that's insightful and thoughtful, but like also helps me discover artists and albums that I've never heard of. Yeah, man. Sounds like you need to listen to Heat Rocks every week. Myself and I'm Morgan Rhodes and my co-host here, Oliver Wong, talk to influential guests about a canonical album that has changed their lives. Guests like Moby, Open Mike Eagle, talk about albums by Prince, Joni Mitchell, and so much more. Yo, what's that show called again? Heat Rocks, deep dives into hot records. Every Thursday on Maximum Fun. 
Hi, I'm Renee Colbert. I'm Alexis Preston. And we're the hosts of the smash hit podcast, Can I Pet Your Dog? Now, Alexis. Yes. We got big news. Uh Uh-oh. Since last we did a promo, our dogs have become famous. World famous. World, like... Stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Second big news. Mm -hmm. The reviews are in. Mm Mm-hmm. Take yourself to Apple Podcasts. You know what you're going to hear? We're happy. It's true. We're a delight. A great distraction from the world. I like that part a lot. So if that's what you guys are looking for, mm-hmm. you got to check out our show. But what else can they expect? We've got dog tech, dog news, celebrities with their dogs, all dog things. All the dog things. So if that interests you, well, get yourself on over to Maximum Fun every Tuesday. Yeah. A lot of the uh, reportage, the reportage, Mm. Um, <laughs> That's the way Ben likes it. Yeah. Uh, around this, it was very effective at describing uh, a, a component of the American intelligence community, which is that a lot of the the heavy lifting that the CIA did in chasing Bin Laden was done by women. Like the like women made up a, a like a uh, I think the lion's share of the right. agents that were doing this hard work, and she's a composite of them. But if you think about Everything we've seen about uh, every every depiction of CIA agents that we've seen in popular culture aren't completely fictionalized into like James Bond. But even in a way, James Bond, they're always shown to us as emotionally detached, like spirits crushed into tiny black pellets. If you think about <laughs> Syriana, if you think about the uh, poppy seeds, the Good even. Shepherd, uh, poppy seeds, yeah. But like there's something there's something in the nature of the work. If you're going to if if it's appealing to you in the first place, if you have the right stuff, if you can pass every one of those little background checks, you almost definitely like to even be a CIA agent. You can never have smoked pot. You can never have listened to the misfits. You have to be a gem in the holograms. Yeah, you can't you can't have an outside life because you have to lie to everybody about what you do. It becomes all consuming. I'm trying to think of anyone I went to high school with being the type of person that would be recruited into the CIA. They're all idiots. Yeah. A high school kid? You have to be a STEM person, I think. Yeah. Right? You have to stick out as so CIA worthy that I think it would be obvious that you had been approached. (laughs) And that it was already underway. Adam is just uh, saying this here so we will never suspect that he is, in fact, an age, a deep cover agent whose cover story is that he's a podcaster. Yeah, he looks like a CIA How badly agent. do you wish that you, I mean, if only to say no, you want to be asked. Actually, both of you guys <laughs> look like CIA, CIA I know. agents. I mean, Ben looks like a CIA agent from 1956. Yeah. Right. I look like I was recruited from the ROTC at Yale. Right. Adam, you just look like one now. Yeah. That's creepy. How old do you think the CIA recruits? Like, like if I if I wanted to join the CIA right now as a 40-year-old man who looks like I do, could I? If you had skills, I think. I think Sadly. the CIA wants people who, who are anonymous looking like me or you or Ben. Like, we're, we're their sweet spot. Shouldn't am, they want people like us? I am not anonymous looking. <laughs> No one would suspect you. <laughs> I, th- I think the way you get in is the director comes back to his office one day and you swivel around in his chair and say, I've penetrated <laughs> as deep into the, into the company as anyone ever has. I would like a job offer within an hour. Yeah. John couldn't even answer the under duress question correctly. Like, There's no way he's getting into that chair. 
<laughs> Did I ever tell you the story at the WTO protests? Uh, l- late at night, the night before the protests erupted, a couple of friends this and was I... 1999 1999, yeah. A couple of friends and I were walking around downtown watching the preparations on, you know, uh, the, like the cops and the WTO were, were kind of prepping um, a cordon and the protesters were already kind of starting to filter in and, and devise their stratagem. And I'm walking around the hotel where the WTO delegates were, uh, were staying and, you know, and it was all cordoned off. And uh, a guy steps out of the shadows and says, John Roderick? And I was like, yeah, hey, you know, I can like hardly see his face. And I'm like, yeah, hi, you know, and my friends kind of step back. And this guy steps out and he's dressed just like in just regular Joe clothes, just looks like a regular Joe. And he was a guy I went to high school, or I'm sorry, a guy I went to college with. And I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? He's like, great, great, great to see you. I haven't seen you in years. And I was like, yeah, what are you doing? He said, I'm in the FBI. And, uh, you know, we're just making sure that everything is you know, like taken care of. And he had the same sort of Adam Pranica, like, yeah. you know, like just sort of evenly colored, evenly sized, smooth, couldn't pick him out smooth, couldn't smooth pick him out hairless. of the lineup. And I was like, well, you know, a great to like get to get a chance to say hi. And he was like, yeah, man, well, you know, be safe. And he stepped kind of just took two steps back into the doorway and went immediately back into the mist. And I saw, I, I, I encountered another intelligence creep on that uh on during wto that really put the fear of god into me but that's a different story wow but anyway ever since then i've been like i have a friend in the fbi i don't know if i i don't know if i can call that in at any point but he's got to have worked his way up pretty high i have a friend in the secret service and i have a friend who works at the pentagon you know i have a i have a friend that's really high up in ice whoa super high up in washington he listens to our show Oh no! And oh. he, what, the last time I was in Washington D.C., he met me. He was wearing a three-piece suit, and uh, in on like the hottest day of the year. Was he wet from children's tears? Uh, he, he was like he's he's been he's been he's been very clear about the fact that like Homeland Security has a lot of different people in it, and not all you know, Homeland not, Security. That's right. That's not, what he was yeah, doing. Not all I'm Homeland just doing security. my job, etc. But, et cetera, but et you know, he palmed me his uh, challenge coin. Oh God! And then he had a couple of other challenge coins from other agencies within the do you, homeland. Do you ice put six of them together to make like a little challenge coin <laughs> cage? You put, if you put six of them together, actually, it opens a portal. <laughs> yeah, a portal to Juarez. You snap your fingers, and it and it uh, makes half of the people in the global south disappear. Uh, it does do that, but also it gets me through uh, TSA a lot faster. It's yeah, sort of, without clear. Yeah, uh, that's special, how you do it. Special line. Uh, yeah, you save seventy bucks, Josh. But at what true cost? Anyway, back to the film. <laughs> I'm happy to say that all of my friends in the federal government have quit in protest. Mm. They're all working at nonprofits now. Yep. Well, you can't dismantle something like that from the outside. So good for them. Wow. Are you part of the uh, you can only dismantle it from the inside crowd? I like I like being sneaky, being inside a thing I and then see. destroying it from within. Just like stealing paper clips. This is how I clips. treat all of my relationships. It's kind of a classic Marxist, mm. you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Where am I? Where else am I going to put the sabo? Mm. <laughs> anyway, back to what I was saying. I, I'm just preoccupied with how many hateful 
Reddit posts are going to be about this episode. Uh, what, what, what do you think people are going to be maddest about? I'm sure that we'll get some stuff saying that, like, you know, we're we're naive idiots for saying that the U.S., you know, that the, the policy of torture was new for the U.S., I'm right, sure, right, right. saying that we've ever met anyone that had any participation in the criminal justice or intelligence community will, will get us a lot of shit. I don't know. Well, as you guys have reminded me over and over, don't go on Reddit. <laughs> I, I, I say it say it to myself every morning don't go on reddit we're just worried about you okay is that okay to say this movie has an extremely strong female lead it has multiple strong female leads and it, in that sense it's a it's it's a rare movie that we've watched although we've seen a couple in recent in recent days recent weeks even though she's like in some ways double triple hard ass it's nice to be with a with a woman all the way through this film. You see guys like this all the time in movies, but you know, not just a project leader, but somebody that when she encounters bureaucracy, she has a kind of, um, almost like she's on a spectrum of unwillingness to be brushed aside or. I, I think that's such an interesting, I mean, how many movies have we seen that bureaucracy is the enemy and this it kind of it's kind of like one of the main antagonists in the film right although she is she's not the kind of person that uses belt fed ammo to take the bureaucracy apart but that's right that's right i mean she uh, she is working from within but yeah it's a it, in that in that way it's another example of well now wait a minute let's think about that we see a lot of a lot of movies where bureaucracy is the enemy and it keeps the guys in the field from doing their jobs this is a lot more confusing about who about what where the bureaucracy is I mean, we, we see we see the tide turn the implication is that Obama took that off the table although Jose Rodriguez says that they stopped using enhanced interrogation in 2003 but we see this sort of sea change, political sea change, that the CIA feels as it reverberates down through what's allowed, and they feel like it's hobbling their ability to gain meaningful intelligence. Their decision-making is hobbled a second time and corresponding time, because not only is that happening to one leg, if you were to give the intelligence community a body. A wooden leg named Smith. But the other leg is hobbled too because of what happened uh, to WMD in Iraq. Like everyone is uh, reluctant to make a choice with anything besides 100% certainty. Right. And this is this is a sidecar problem to the main problem throughout the film. It's like how much certainty is enough certainty to do a thing to risk being wrong? And no one is willing to take that kind of risk until the certainty reaches 100%. Well, but it never does, right? right. And, and James Gandolfini as Leon Panetta, um, we get this crazy moment where, and then that, and that case that's being made in, the, in the, the halls of the White House where the National Security Advisor is walking along with the, whatever, the counterterrorism CIA dude, and he's saying, can you afford to be the guy in the White House that doesn't kill bin Laden. Like, you don't want right. to be the guy that does it wrong. You don't want to screw this up. But but honestly, are you going to be... How, how's your name going to get written? It's a risk either way. Yeah, That's a crazy portrayal of a political uh, like knife edge that we don't see a lot in films. 
I don't want to skip over Gandolfini too much, uh, but now might be a good time to bring up that uh, he had some feelings about playing Panetta. Oh, really? And actually, like, pre-apologized to him about, like, he was he was nervous about it, nervous about the portrayal, and was like, hey, get, get a message to Panetta. Like, this is happening, and... Hope you like it. What's his? What? Why? What's his connection Leon, to Panetta? And Leon Panetta like wrote back and said uh, said that he loved the performance. Said that uh, said that the only thing that was wrong was uh, was how little profanity <laughs> Gandolfini used because uh, Leon Panetta was a known soapy mouth. He, is that right? Yeah, he, he was a swearer, <laughs> huh? Which is uh, one of the like winks at at real life people is when Maya uses the word motherfucker in that meeting. And it like, you could hear a pin drop afterwards. Like that would have been something that Panetta had said himself about his circumstances. He's great in this movie. And again, like every time you see Gandolfini, you just like, you miss him big yeah. time. Yeah. It sucks. I read a an op-ed by uh, former assistant secretary of defense, Graham Allison in the Christian Science Monitor that came out when the film, it's interesting timing because it, it came out uh, when Zero Dark Thirty was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. And I think that's interesting because that's February, not October or November. Like it doesn't, this is post-election. So it doesn't come from a place of like trying to, you know, shift the electorate in one direction or another. But uh, he does make the case that the Bush administration had essentially like decided to stop committing resources to hunting bin Laden and that it wouldn't have happened hadn't had the Obama administration not kind of renewed the effort and I thought it was like one interesting like like he's very critical of the way the film kind of portrays the you know this is like one CIA officer who uh you know never gave up and she like by the by the time she you know has something to to go on it's the Obama administration they're like oh huh Bin Laden, interesting. Well, we'll consider it. You know, <laughs> like uh, at this point, she's the only person in the world that gives a shit, and they're like, "Well, you know, look, we'll we'll hear you out, but you're really gonna have to persuade us." And uh, I don't know what Graham Allison's like political affiliations are or, or whatever, but uh, you know, in in this refutation of some of the historical accuracy, uh, is making the case that this just simply would not have happened, you know, in the Bush administration or whatever. And, and that Obama was in fact totally instrumental to this going down. I feel like the, the movie as a political talking point and a cultural talking point is one way to look at it. It's one way to look at it now that we're looking at it. Basically you want to that. write that one down? Yeah. Let me, let me write that down. There's your chorus. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I feel like at a certain point, all the chatter about whether or not this movie is a realistic depiction of one or another aspect of what it's doing, all that chatter, you also have to filter through some kind of critical lens of who's saying it. And you just, you just, you just said that very thing, Ben, which is like, right. well, I don't know what this guy's political ax to grind is. Yeah, as he looks like he was in office under Clinton. So, but you know, he's grinding on an aspect of the movie and every single aspect of this movie gets, 
gets stuck in the craw of somebody. And right. all those somebodies also have, you know, they're not just grinding on it because it's the wrong caliber of machine gun or those uniforms weren't used until 15 years after the, you know, they're not pedants like that. They're using this movie as a way of advancing their own political agenda or, or uh, they want the story to be written a certain way. And past a certain point, I started to not trust any critical voice against this movie because there were so many and they all felt like they were also motivated by some kind of desire to have some part of the story written the, uh, that, that to shine a golden light on somebody. Right. And so I, I had to start watching this movie as a movie and recognize that there are lots of characters in this movie that are composites. There are also lots of characters in this movie that are just actual real people in like Leon Panetta is a real person who really did real things. And they also watched the movie and had shit to say like, well, my mustache isn't that bruffy or whatever, you know, like it, (laughs) uh, and it also depicts real events. Uh, These, this really happened. Um, yeah. I mean, it's so different from watching the Patriot and having it kind of, you know, like a bunch of inaccurate bullshit about the American revolution color. your the way you think about that is so different from something that is an extremely recent moment in history. Then the ramifications of which are still playing out all around us. Right. And, and 20 years from now, I don't think that there, I think that this is in a, in a way going to end up being the definitive history of this event. I mean, there, once yeah. you put it into a Hollywood movie, um, it's such a, it's, it, it has so much impact to watch it dramatized this way. Already. I feel like I can't separate what I know about it. What I know about that whole 15 years, 1995 to, to whenever this movie came out. Right. Because, it, because there's this whole pre nine 11 kind of intelligence understanding of what was leading up to it and so forth. We can't look at this movie outside of all that knowledge, but also it is, it's a self-contained organism. And as a film, I think it works really well. Don't you want to see what's in the folder? I mean, obviously it works well there. How many, how many movies get editorials written about them in every single newspaper that are, that are still being argued. Um, But I, but I, I don't, I, I cannot speak to what actual enhanced interrogation looks like because there are just too many competing voices and all of them, a lot of them from trustworthy sources, but, but the, the way things are politicized now, even somebody who steps out and says, I am a non-political operator. This is, I'm a professional torturer. And here's what I say about what we do. And everybody's like, well, that's, of course, that's what you would say, professional torturer, because of your union or what, you know. You're like, in the pocket of big torture. Yeah, exactly. There's no, there, somehow the, the, the loss of truth and, the re, and replacing it with truthiness, now it makes it in, incredibly difficult to watch a movie like this and be able to interrogate it. Because based on what? All we can do is interrogate it based on our own political uh, take or or desire for one thing to be truer than another. The, the, the fact is that eventually 
we did find this guy and kill him at the after expending billions of dollars and basically like chasing a guy and in a way that's it's crazy that the world is still that big i mean if you think about if you had to run today adam the first thing you would do is run down to the supermarket and get your, with your atm card and try and get as much money as you could out which would be how much that's how dumb you think I am. Well, you, the thing is, you got fuck you. You got. You, I mean, the last thing they're going to know about you, Adam, is that you went to the QFC with your ATM card and withdrew what? The maximum. How much is that? Five hundred bucks. I don't know. What's I mean, the isn't maximum? Isn't that what ben? an ATM limit is? Sure, sure. I think it. I think, think it might be more. Yeah. So let's say you can get eight hundred bucks. Let me let me just say that you get eight hundred bucks. How far can you go? I mean, you don't have an international network of like minded. Uh, I'm not religious like, fanatics. I'm not like you that way. <laughs> but I mean, it's a crazy, it's a crazy story, no matter how you try and portray it. And this is a great lens, I think, to 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 chase him through her. It's it's almost the only way I want to see it. You know, I needed this. I needed to watch all of the politics and all of the kind of rage, like the white collar rage filtered through all these scenes as depictions go i want to talk a little bit about osama bin laden himself which you see for just a moment blurry blurry at the moment he's being shot how much thought do you think they gave to whether or not we are cross-cutting to him at any point throughout the film up until the end? Or do you think the entire time it w- it could only ever be like, there was never going to be like, and Burt Reynolds as Osama bin Laden. <laughs> like it was only ever going to be a bloody dead guy in a bag, right? Well, the US government never released a picture of dead Osama. Now we've seen pictures of dead Saddam Hussein. I have a selfie with dead Gaddafi. Right, that we've seen dead Gaddafi. Uh, we've seen all of like uh, Hussein's kids, like, but the government specifically intentionally did not ever let us see Osama bin Laden. I think that is confusing to a lot of people why they didn't, and they had a reason. Torture may be beyond the pale, but broadcasting a photograph is beyonder the pale, right? Except that it always. I mean, it's just like we've never we never saw a picture of dead Hitler. And so there will always be people that are like, well, he's not really dead. There are always going to be people that say, well, they didn't show him because X or because Y. It, it introduces an element of doubt. And so for this movie to have given us a clear picture of dead o- Osama, when we don't have that already in our minds, it would have been jarring. So I think that's the the best they could do is kind of give us this like, is it him? She seems to think so. Yeah. Um, There's never like a, a face on shot of him. It's right. always kind of up his nose or or he's, you know, moving and he's falling a, yeah. on the floor. He's a tall guy with a long beard that's got some gray in it. It really stuck out to me as a very, very specific choice. But but a weird choice on the part of the of the CIA and the military. They dumped his body in the ocean. Yeah. Right over where Atlantis is, too, right? Mm. Why? But why? They flew into the Bermuda Triangle and yeah. came out without him. Yeah. Think about that for a minute. 
You know what else is a weird choice? And this is something that uh, a pedant on the internet noticed. Just uh, as the Camp Chapman scene starts set in 2009, Maya is shown talking to Jessica, who is frosting a cake, on the phone. Maya clearly uses a BlackBerry Bold 9900 OS7 series with a thick metallic frame around the phone, which was not released until August 3rd, 2011. I wow. hate this pedant. This is the kind of pedant. <laughs> I thought this was going to be a frosting pedant, and then yeah. it really took a left turn. I was like, she's frosting his cake? What? <laughs> G- gadget pedant. Wow. Gadget pedant. I used to work for a gadget blog, so I, uh, yeah. I, I I know these people. Did you? Did, were you also mad about the 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 BlackBerry? No, I mean, I, this is one of those movies that is set in a very specific time of of smartphones where they were still kind of a, a novelty, and and uh, before they all looked just like you know extremely uniform black rectangles. It's a hell of a combination. I, I feel like any. Any any phone pedant in in like the last five years is gonna be is is gonna have a tough time because phones are almost indistinguishable from each other now. Right, they'll just refer to the to the phone case. That tiger striped yeah. phone case didn't come out at the mall kiosk until <laughs> 2024. Yeah, how did you guys feel about the fact that a big part of the the middle of this movie? was focused on basically just getting this guy's phone number. And like in that scene in particular, it turns a win into something that is, uh, that is Pyrrhic almost, right? Like they see the guy and they take his picture, but they can't arrest him because they're playing a longer game. Right. We got to let him go. And we, they've got all these stringers who are sitting out at a, with their little cart where they're selling shoestrings. Yeah. And their whole job is like, he just drove by. The excitement is in the environment. It's not in the actual uh, spycraft versus tradecraft going on. What they're telling us is is very different from what they're showing us too, because they're they're making the case that they were out there doing that for weeks and months at a time, like every single day, just driving around that town trying to pick up the signal and then eventually getting something that they could work with. But which ends up being expensive, right? They they've got thirty right. people that they're paying every day to just sort of sit there and wait for that white truck to drive by. Was the courier's biggest mistake, I mean, besides taking a job with Osama bin Laden, sure, sure, to be sure. clear, it almost goes without saying. Sure, we don't want anybody you on want the Reddit. courier's to- second biggest mistake. <laughs> you want to turn down the interview when uh, when UBL like uh-huh. reaches out to you. I think I'm going to pass on this one. That's what the courier should have said. But it's buying that white truck, right? We hear time and time again, the white truck sticks out. Don't stand out. out. Don't stand out. That is not an anonymous vehicle. And I think the problem with the courier is that he has a sense of style and he he wants his vehicle to reflect his personality. Yep. Big mistake. It's like the guy in the heist movie that that splashes out once he gets his uh, his share. Yeah, right. Yeah. I should say that Adam showed up today in a linen shirt that is literally the color of sage i mean it's the color of putty basically if you could if you could use adam you could you could basically use adam to spackle a uh, a crack in your door frame i it's, can't tell if you are saying this to be complimentary or not i'm saying it that you can t- your tradecraft is so high <laughs> if you if i turned around and turned back i might be 
like, who's this guy? I wish you hadn't told Ben this because Ben's been encouraging me to wear colors and patterns and then I show up looking like putty. You know, I think ultimately I'm upset with myself. I think if I went to a store and I saw a shirt that was the color of putty, I wouldn't see it. My eye wouldn't see it. It's possible if you talk to Adam long enough today, you'll forget who he is and why he's in your house. (laughs) I am so white that the color of my skin makes the color of putty pop. Well, yeah, right. I mean, yeah, the color of putty gives gives your like uh, it's good it, for my complexion. Your right? eternal pinkness it yeah. gives it a whole new very complimentary new shade. Yeah, that's what I was going for. I liked this movie. I liked it when it came out. I was, Are we rating the movie right not now? Not yet. Not yet. All right. I want to. I want to. I but I do want to like stand in a moment here where the complexities of interpreting this movie. I think add to it. I think the fact that you're watching those torture scenes and you cannot for sure know whether they accurately depict what we did. And that is morally repugnant, whether they are an exaggeration or a, or a fictionalization of what we did and what we actually did is morally okay. Whether it is an accurate depiction of torture and that is fine because the end justifies the means and we ended up with achieving victory or whether the entire uh the entire thing is indictment of the american way and none of it was worth it and osama bin laden was right all along and we, he should have we should have supported him with uh with our tax dollars because he was upending the jewish conspiracy that runs the world like every single one of the every single t- now you're talking <laughs> every single take that you could have when you're watching this movie, like they, at least for me, they were all folded uh, like yeah. like layers of dough and butter in a delicious croissant of cool movie. Wow, it's like it's like cops. Like if you're a right winger, you can watch it and just be like, yeah, these cops are really kicking a ton of ass. And if you're a left winger, you watch it and go like, wow, like they keep pulling poor black and brown people over again and again and busting them for a dime bag like it's actually changing anything except for there are a zillion episodes of this show and it's all the same but at the end of cops you don't unite the entire audience in that a catharsis boys, boys. What you gonna uh, do? where everyone what can you agree on on the relief of osama bin laden being killed like is that not the the unifying force of the film at the end isn't that the thing we can all agree on that like well that's good we got him we can cry on the plane alone now this is uh, an impossible mission for for this production team to have to have made something that that wasn't going to be treated this way one year later yeah did i hook you up did i <laughs> it's review time and fortunately for us uh the story of the film hasn't changed right as we're getting ready to review it in the same way that that the screenwriter had his story changed before they were ready to shoot it. It seems like a miracle that this film was made the way that it was. Uh, Not So Miraculous is our podcast based on it. Mm. I think our podcast would get a five-thing review, to be honest. And if you're out there and you haven't reviewed it yet, get off your duff. Give us the five things. When considering what the rating system would be for this film, I think think you must choose something uh, of an ambiguous nature. I think that is one thing we've 
hit on consistently throughout the film is is the degree to which the film's ambiguity is real or not based on your preconceptions coming into the film or even leaving the film and having a conversation after. I think there's a line of dialogue here that that succinctly places this film in that kind of thinking, and that is uh, when Maya and Dan are talking about the changing policies surrounding uh, what the film calls enhanced interrogation, what uh, the hosts of Friendly Fire are probably more comfortable calling torture. Uh, Dan tells Maya that you never want to be the last person holding a dog collar. Ain't that the truth. That is a a very visual metaphor for their circumstances. And so on a scale of one to five dog collars, it shall be. Uh, I want to be clear, and I think... Everyone who listens to our show would guess that uh, if we were to give a review to torture, we would give that zero dog collars. This is not a pro-torture podcast, this right? Is, this is comp- This is complicated. Yeah. Zero dog collars That's equals the, no torture. Yeah. Right. Try to hold that in your head. But we are reviewing a film, and a few times during this conversation, that, that would come up. We'd go on a tangent where we would interrogate what this film was saying about torture or the methods uh, used in order to get the evidence used to get and kill Osama bin Laden. But this is a film review podcast. And so it feels more challenging than ever to review this film and not to review the policy. But as a film, I think it is really, really strong in spite of the things I didn't like about its main character, like the absence of character in its main character was a thing that, that rode me the wrong way. And I think it's it's like the absence of a dog collar in a policy of no torture. I think it's because of my innate, uh, love of Jessica Chastain and her acting. Like, I really think she's great. Uh, Like she's handpicked to be in this film. Catherine Bigelow, also a big fan of hers, offered her the part over the phone directly like wanted her to be in it mark bull wanted her to be in it everyone wants jessica chastain to be in it and she's great in the movie but how weird that her greatness is also associated with like her very cypherness as a character i thought that was a really interesting challenge i thought the film was super frightening and i think one of the things it does best is turn the places you think you're safe into dangerous places like that double decker bus like that Marriott, like that military base where they let in the red Subaru. It is a creepy, creeping feeling throughout. Like when Maya leaves her driveway and and you, God, like the first time you see where she lives and you see that there's a guard tower in her driveway is such a, a terrifying thought. I think it is maybe the most challenging thing a filmmaker can do to maintain suspense in a story that you already know the ending to. And I think in that way, this film achieves greatness for what it is. I'm going to give it four and a half dog collars. I think it's, I think it's in between really good and great. One of the things that pushes it towards great is its, is its effectiveness as an instrument for conversation. And I think our favorite films in Friendly Fire are the ones that really get us energized for that kind of thing. And it's weird, too, because for as 
down the middle as this film plays it in terms of where it lands on being pro or anti-torture, like it really encourages this sort of conversation in a way that I think weaker films who make stronger cases for what it's advocating in its story, like are, are less effective at. I think it's kind of magical in that way. So it's going to be four and a half dog collars for me. Really just troubling in a lot of areas, but uh, a great film to talk about. And sadly, a film that is as uh, resonant now as it's ever been. Like, (laughs) we're all still crying on that plane. Like, the plane has not landed at the end of this film. And that is pretty sad. What say you guys? It's a fascinating movie. It's a tough movie to watch. I keep making the mistake of preparing dinner on Monday night and my <laughs> wife gets home and we watch the Friendly Fire movie and with a big you know, bowl of spaghetti into our mac and cheese <laughs> while the guy is shitting himself and getting stuffed into a box in the torture scene. I think my favorite thing I read about this movie after watching it was uh an article in Slate by Emily Bazelon uh, that discusses this issue of... Are we having um, to cite all of this stuff in our footnotes? Because I haven't been writing my papers that way. No, it's all right. Okay. It's okay. I'm, I'm just saying something I liked that I read. Adam didn't footnote his sources, and he's going to get a B- minus on the paper. That's what I'm afraid yeah. of. Yeah. So she says, the thing that is uncomfortable about this movie from a liberal perspective is that like, well, it definitely exaggerates the torture thing. For sure, there, it overstates when, when and where it was used. We can't really know as, as like, not top-secret privy civilians to what extent the torture actually did yield actionable intelligence. And this movie depicts a very specific example of that that didn't happen, but... You know, like it, it makes the case that there were like a lot of other people in in custody getting interrogated. We see lots of uh, little grainy video clips of that. And we can't say for certain that torture is was entirely useless in the, you know, cause, because it's it it would be comforting to say that, to say that this war crime that our country committed was also totally useless and didn't need to happen in the first place because it didn't get us any any further than we would have gotten just you know, acting correctly. And I think that tension is in the movie. I think that the way it deals with torture acknowledges that. I think that tension is, is here and I, I feel it all the way through this movie. And I think the movie makes a smart decision to exploit that tension to its own ends. And I think that it's, it's kind of the only way to tell this story in in the time that it's told like i think in you know in 10 or 15 years there could be another movie about this that can use the kind of 2020 of hindsight to to make a a, a more emphatic statement about it but it's an amazing you know it's an amazing adventure that happened and i think that it does help us kind of kind of dig into into you know what what we did in response to 9/11 and i don't think i agree with what we did in response to 9/11 but i think that 
as a movie, this is a great movie. So I'll give it. Uh, I'll give it a. I got. I guess four dog collars. It feels so weird to say that. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, I think it's the right thing. I think. Yeah. I think you're using that tension in the same way that the movie is. I mean, speaking as probably the only guy on our show that has been the last one holding left holding the dog collar. More than once. <laughs> yeah, you're definitely the dog collar holder and not the wearer, huh? No, for for shiz. God, I I grieve for your DMs. The thing that we did in response to 9-11 that was morally repugnant was start two global wars that lasted 15 years that expended trillions of dollars of treasure and hundreds of thousands of lives, right? I mean... Yeah, not not even really <laughs> depicted in the movie. It's like... right. You can only you can only access that via the presence of Bagram Air Force Base or whatever. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, we're during the during the whole the whole uh, scope of this movie, we're also in a protracted global war. This is a this is a movie that depicts events that we all intimately lived through. None of this that we're seeing uh, we didn't see in real time. We all read those ed- editorials as they were happening. We. I'm, I'm assuming at least two of the three of us actively opposed the Bush administration in every in every action they took. And the other one of the three of us was uh, was just uh, dressed in a putty color and sort of wandering the How wandering the you. earth. <laughs> you won't be laughing when my putty cult strikes. <laughs> it's lulling us into a false sense of security. <laughs> I think one of the one of the coolest things about this movie is it's not like the Doolittle Raid where uh, you can watch a movie made about the Doolittle Raid and it's this sort of discrete event that is happening within a uh, within a larger war. But um, we know the we know the characters here are the airplanes they leave the they leave the uh, well gee Marianne I'm off to torture Abu al Husseini and that's the thing we've seen the Doolittle Raid portrayed a few different ways half truths will be treated like lies <laughs> and those have dinner hot on the table when I get home there's not a ton of controversy about the Doolittle Raid whether it was necessary it was just a it was just a high adventure but there's never been a portrayal of it that feels definitive right we're going to see another one we're going to see that Doolittle yeah. raid again and again over the course of uh, 200 years of American war movie filmmaking. But this does feel definitive, and we, and it's showing us a side of something we all lived through that we didn't really have access to. And because it maintains a, like a, a detached tone, it feels like an apologia to some... Uh, not just to some viewers, but at some times as you're watching it, like, wait a minute, is this, whose side are we on? Because we're so used to <laughs> looking at everything from a, from a side, from an angle now. We, we no longer think in terms of American interests, right? I mean, no one ever looks at the Doolittle raid and says, well, back on the home front, fully 50% of the people were against the Doolittle raid because, you know, because of political reasons. And during the events depicted, I was a member of the, you know, what would be described as the dissenting class. I didn't agree with a single decision the Bush administration made, but I certainly rejoiced when Osama bin Laden was killed. 
and watching this movie and seeing what is what is effectively like the story of Jason Bourne, except without all the slow motion fight scenes, with all the without all the exaggerated fantasy aspect of it, we see how boring all of the people supporting these missions, uh, how, how, how boring and grinding their lives are. I don't see how you're ever going to make a movie about this, about these events. That's better than this one. Any subsequent depiction of that raid is going to be superfluous because we're not, it's not like we're going to get any new information and I don't think it's going to be depicted any better. We didn't really talk about the movie making of, uh, of a lot of this movie because we're so fascinated by the, by all the undercurrents and overcurrents, all the politics, but it's a great movie. Yeah. As a production, there are things about this film that are, that are great. Like capital G great. Like they built the compound in Jordan, like to scale based on documents. Like it actually existed. There were no, uh, there were no wild walls in it. Like it was all practical as a compound uh, to allow for for like unbroken shots following the soldiers up the stairs and around corners and stuff. Like you you recognize it the second you see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's astonishing. It was, it, it's lucky that so many people had an opinion about this movie because in the aggregate, you can see how the chattering class uh, works against itself. So I think this is an extraordinary movie, and uh, and I think it's a five dog collar film. Holy shit! I don't, I do not find a flaw with it. Wow! Because every flaw that you could find is a flaw that gathers so many other bits of source material to the to the question that it becomes its own. It becomes a strength. Ben, who's your guy? This is a guy that we've talked about. Uh, quite a bit. Whenever we see commandos, uh, we we have encountered a couple of times commandos who seem to be able to kind of give the thumbs up or thumbs down to their to their job. <laughs> and uh, the commando that I guess works at the at the embassy in Pakistan that Jessica Chastain goes down and is like, "Hey, like I need your guys to be like going out and tracking this uh, this courier." And he's like, yeah, 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 but they're they're sleeping right now. So uh, you know, you give me something something to work with, and we'll get on it, but not before then. Uh, I'm fascinated by the by the commando that gets to <laughs> that gets to pick and choose what he does. So uh, and and he also had like a bit of an accent. So I I kind of wondered about his background. Like like no character in this movie do you get any anything but what is presented on screen you know you know yeah. no, nobody uh, nobody recounts how they got into this racket in fact when leon panetta the director of the cia asked the jessica chastain character how she got into this racket she says he's not allowed to ask her that question so uh, but uh, but uh, that guy fascinated me the commissary at the cia headquarters has got to be the most quiet place in the world right yeah, and I also just love that move when uh, when their buddy gets out of the car in uh, I think it's Peshawar maybe that he gets out of the car to like tell the two guys on mopeds to fuck off. He does that thing where he takes out the pistol and presses it against the the dashboard, mm. like he's gonna shoot through the car at those guys if if it comes to it. 
Love that move. So he's my guy. That was Edgar Ramirez playing the role of Larry. CIA. Larry, uh, Larry is my guy. I believe that's your first Larry, Ben. Yeah, good job. Uh, my guy is Thomas, and uh, he's one of the many anonymous coworkers that Maya has. This film plays it so down the middle in so many areas that there's a moment that I couldn't help but laugh at reflexively because it was so coded in a type of humor that I'm familiar with, but was so clearly not. And it's the scene where uh, where one of Maya's leads gets killed and Thomas, who's played by Jeremy Strong, like like it's one of the low points in the film. Thomas like puts a hand on her shoulder and is like, sorry, Maya, I always like this lead like grieving the loss of a lead as if they were deaths, like that extra added grief about this, that in the moment, the first time I saw it, I was like, that's just how it is in that office, like <laughs> like treating it. <laughs> but in the context of the film was like supposed to be taken seriously. Uh, Thomas is played by Jeremy Strong, who's an actor I really like from a show called Succession. Uh, he is. He gets very little to do in this film, like most other characters in it. But I thought that moment was like so CIA up to your interpretation that it was like emblematic of anything else in this film. Like, can I laugh? Is it okay to laugh? I don't think it's okay to laugh. Like, he's being serious. Like, shit is fucked at this moment in time. But putting it that way, in terms of of the death of someone. Uh, when it's really just about like the loss of a lead uh, was perfect for me. And so that that makes Thomas my guy. Uh, we've talked about my guy already quite a bit. Uh, he is um, Hakim, who was also the CIA operative. Uh, ben just mentioned him. He's the guy that got out and talked to the kids on the motorcycle. Uh, he's played by the actor Ferris Ferris. He is in so many scenes in this movie. And he is... He's a CIA employee, but he's also part of their like special operations. So he's he's on the streets of Peshawar searching for searching for Abu Ahmed, but he's also at Area 51 looking at the helicopters. Um, he's a very capable guy, but he's but he's uh, he's thinking hard about everything he's doing. So he's my guy, Hakim. Good guys. <laughs> Will it be a good movie next time on Friendly Fire? Only the 120-sided die can tell us. Here we go, 120-sided die. I had a dream die. that I saw an ad for a 130-sided die. Oh. <laughs> Sounds like a great dream. Yeah. You wake up with it's a little uh, wet spot? I never don't. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here comes the die roll. Number 70. Number 70. Number 70 is a 1959 comedy film directed by Jack Arnold, set in a banana republic, it says here. It's called The Mouse That Roared, starring uh, Peter Sellers. Yeah, this is, uh, there's going to be an awful lot to interrogate about this movie, I predict. Uh, this is one, I, I feel like one of the ones that gets requested the most often. We may see some uh, white guys portraying some uh, some Latin people. Oh, no. 
We may see some pretty broad <laughs> characterizations. It was. There may be some brown face. It's. Uh, I mean, not. It's. It, mm. I don't think it's excoriated. Oh no! It's a. This country is nestled in the French Alps, so I think. Uh, oh, it's fine. It's oh, fine, okay, yeah. all right. You the give French the French Alps. a pass. Yeah. On their brand of comedy. Oh, sure, and Peter Sellers very good at fake French accent. Oh yeah. Keto. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, look. Looking forward to it. It's about a, a poor country that declares war on the United States. Oh, incidentally, Zero Dark Thirty, war movie? Mm. Yes or no? Ooh. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a war on terror movie, and I think it makes the case that police action was a better way to think about everything and, and that, you know, catching Osama bin Laden should have been exclusively this kind of work maybe rather than like but, carpet uh, bombing two countries into submission yeah like it like at no point do you get the feeling that like setting up a provisional government in iraq did anything to advance this cause <laughs> right yeah i agree i think it checks that box uh but uh the mouse that roared will be next week and uh in the meantime we'll leave it with our buddy robs 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 so for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Benjamin Harrison, Adam Pranica, and John Roderick. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. Friendly Fire is made possible by the support of our listeners, like you. And you can make sure that the show continues by going to MaximumFun.org slash donate. As an added bonus, you'll receive our monthly Pork Chop episode, as well as all the fantastic bonus content for Maximum Fun. If you'd like to discuss the show online, please use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick. And I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Yeah, and also go to MaxFun, uh, dot Max Fun Stein. Sure. What is it called? MaxFunkenstein.sex. <laughs> Is where is where you can donate to the production. Donate of the show. to the production of the show on maxfunkenstein.sex/slash friendlyfire. My favorite website on the internet. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.